instead of concentrating on making the saw ever more powerful and, and pushing it harder through driving change and leading change and, and telling people about their burning ice, ice uh, burning platforms, I think we now need to look at change as an organism, as, as an ecosystem. Let's say organism. Let's say at a cellular level. And unless that cell has the ability to mutate, then the organism isn't going to advance. So we as leaders then need to be giving the cells the skills to mutate. Hello and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired, where leaders are challenged to rethink what, how and why they and their organizations learn. Learning Rewired is proudly presented by Headspring, custom executive development specialists as part of Headspring's commitment to fostering cultures of continuous learning. I am your host, Bevan Rees. Nineteen years into the 21st century, and it has become almost platitudinal to observe that what got us here in the past will not get us where we need to go in the future. By now, we all know that we are living through an age of unprecedented rates of change. We are all well-versed in narratives about landscape shifts, industry disruptions, strategy redundancies. However, familiarity with the challenge does not necessarily equal a solution. What do we as individuals need to navigate these waters? What skills do leaders especially need to develop to keep their organizations relevant and successful in the 21st century? My guest today is Jim Lawless, a leading authority on AQ, adaptability intelligence emanating from the skills needed to deliver bold, fast change. He has inspired and educated over half a million people on five continents through his mindset-shifting keynotes and his best-selling book, Taming Tigers. Jim doesn't only talk about AQ skills. His appreciation of adaptability has enabled him to become a televised jockey within a year of starting to ride and to become Britain's deepest freediver in just eight months of training. Jim was elected a fellow of the Royal Society for the Arts in recognition of his business writing and is currently studying neuroscience at King's College London. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Bevan. It's quite a diverse CV. As, as I'm reading it, <laughs> it hits me again. You missed out uh, starting life as a corporate lawyer, but uh, oh, yes. that's, that's, we'll, we'll move over that. Yeah, so uh, good point. So where you find yourself today, I understand, is quite different from where you started as a corporate lawyer. And a primary theme that I'm hearing draw through that is adaptability. Perhaps we should start there. Your personal story of adaptability what your experience has been of the requirements of the skill. Okay, that's an unexpected starting place. So my experience was of starting a career which I stuck with for five years, having spent six years to qualify, mm. and then realizing that that, that wasn't really the career for me. <laughs> and having to, going through a long period of thinking, well, tough luck, because that's your job and that's who you are and that's what you do and that's what starts on a Monday and finishes on a Friday and you can have the weekend to yourself which is perhaps the industrial age approach as well, and we'll return to that theme, or I will. The big change for me, the first big change, probably the most important for me, the most important adaptation was moving on from that, realizing that I could. And that was the result of a perception shift, which was beginning to see 
the world slightly differently mm. and and this will become a theme in our conversation as mm. well how we how we consciously examine our perceptions the map we're using to navigate the world and the data which powers the algorithm which keeps us safe mm-hmm. uh, from risk and uncertainty which is going to be a key part of what you just described in your fabulous introduction beginning to look at those perceptions more critically and accurately mm. allowed me to find the courage to move on to do uh, other things which for me personally was very important so there's an examination in what you're saying. There's a self-examination of where you're currently at and what isn't working and what needs to change in order for you to get somewhere that works better for you. Yeah. What was the trigger for the self-examination? Oh, wow. Really? Okay. Uh, so well, <laughs> I super. ask that because for many people it's a significant event. Yeah. Sometimes we get hit over the head by life itself and we're invited to wake up and change something. Was it a radical event like that or...? I was hit over the head by a station announcement guy, yeah. and uh, not literally. <laughs> and um, but you, the point you make on a wider note, a macro note, before we go uh, micro to me, is is really critical because mm-hmm. usually change occurs, and we only go through that process of metacognition of, of thinking about our thinking and examining where the where the data is coming from mm-hmm. as a result of a big event, and we either wait for that event mm-hmm. or we find the courage to create it, mm-hmm. and that's less often what people do, and mm-hmm. that's where I go a lot now professionally is how do we begin to create those events rather than waiting Mm -hmm. Uh, and what does it mean to create that for me personally i waited and then the station announcement came it was a sunday i was heading into the city of london to work and it was a sunny day and we don't get that many as you are now aware having come to the uk we don't get that many here so uh, it was a beautiful sunny sunday so i was off in theory Mm -hmm. the whole world was wearing flip-flops and shorts and carrying a carry bag with beer or barbecue ingredients and i was wearing chinos and a shirt and heading into the city and the station announces announced a train which was going to Brighton calling at and for those uh, from other countries Brighton is a beautiful seaside Mm. town in the UK and I thought wouldn't it be amazing if I could go to Brighton today and then I realised that I could go to Brighton today. <laughs> I was entirely choosing, for a whole number of complex reasons, choosing to go into the city of London and work on a contract. So I didn't go to Brighton. I didn't want to let everybody down. I had commitments. But that started a chain of events and a thought process around ownership, which from my personal background wasn't front of mind. Mm-hmm. I was tuned into seeking out an authority figure and making sure that I was... I was acceptable and good. And that was something which I think was very much the industrial age way. We, mm. we were trained to fit in, get a job, keep our heads beneath the parapet. And if we were good enough, we'd keep it until we were 65 and they'd give us a clock and a pension. Mm-hmm. And of course, that world is gone. Uh, we're still training people to survive in it, but it's gone. And that was a moment when I began to, to go on a different path of self-examination and awareness. Mm-hmm. You use the word ownership there, which yeah. is... A powerful word when we're talking even just about ourselves, before we even start talking about what that means in a broader capacity, such as in a leadership capacity where you're responsible for more than just yourself. But let's begin with ourselves. It sounds like an easy thing to say, to take ownership of oneself. In your case, what you're describing, almost ownership of one's destiny or ownership of, of one's direction and the choices you're going to make into the future. That's not an easy thing to do. For many people, what is it that makes it difficult? So no, that's not an easy thing to do. And it's becoming more difficult by the day to do as it becomes more critical to do it because Mm. if we're going to 
thrive in a time of disruption. We're going to have to own our performance level. The reason it's becoming more difficult, in my view, is that the narratives spinning around are becoming more and more victim-based. So more and more, we're finding there's somebody to blame for the mm. position that I'm in today. Mm. Now, many people are not subscribing to that. Many people can navigate their way through that, but also many can't. Mm -hmm. And so we, we begin to have a, an issue with resilience, anxiety, mental health and well-being, where people aren't owning and able to see that they can impact on their destiny. There's a sense of powerless, inability to move, mm. which is being sold really, really quite heavily. There are other more complex reasons. Our time of change is one of those reasons as well. You know, our natural rate of human adaptation is being far outstripped by the pace of change we're seeing around us. And if we plotted that on a graph, we'd see a straight line and uh, an exponential curve disappearing off above that straight line. And whereas uh, 200 years ago, they were probably on the same track. Mm. And that gap as well fuels resilience, mental well-being, stress, burnout. So we've got straight into a really important topic. I think one of the reasons it's hard to take ownership is we were trained not to, and we're still being trained, as I mentioned, not to. At school, we weren't encouraged to own the solution. We were encouraged to get the right answer and repeat it back, which is very much industrial age training to fit into a machine that needs you to be compliant, be that on a farm in the military, old school farm, old school military or old school manufacturing, military in some way, and police now teaching us things in the private sector, I think. Um, it's also just an easy way of being, mm. and a human being will default to an easy way of being. Owning my own destiny, taking up the pen and writing it, requires me to ask why aren't I acting in a certain way? Why aren't I at a certain place yet? And what would I have to do in order to get to the place I would like to be at? And how testing will that be? Mm. And what if I fail in that, having potentially told other people that that's where I'm going? You mentioned my neuroscience studies at the moment, which are incredibly testing for a humanities graduate alongside work job and parenting. So, mm. so I, it rings very loudly in my head as you say that. It's a lot easier not to own it. And to many extent, that was in the advantages of the old system. I'm not being political in any way, but it, it worked within the old system for people not to own it, to pass ownership over and then turn up in terror that if they didn't comply, there were huge risks, there wasn't great employment opportunities, there wasn't a welfare state, and we've, we've emerged in very recent times from that age. Mm -hmm. So I, mean, I think we all have experience of this, right? That passing of the buck, the accountability being distributed along the chain, that reluctance to take ownership. I mean, if we reverse that chain and go up the traditional hierarchy and, you know, to where the buck stops, you know, that's usually with, with leaders and senior leaders. Increasingly, though, in organizations, we are seeing individuals encouraged to claim that autonomy and take responsibility for their own actions and take ownership of their own prospects and their own future and their own development. I've spoken to a number of guests about this balance between empowering members of an organization to lead their own development and their own learning, while at the same time facilitating an environment which allows them to do so in a safe, as safe a way as possible, a psychologically safe way. So what I've been hearing in conversations is that what we are taking ownership of is also changing. It's not just the act of ownership itself. Leaders, what leaders are taking ownership of are not just results. It's about the creation of an ecosystem 
that allows people to be more empowered to generate better results, not just for themselves, but for the organization. Is that a fair reflection? <laughs> you put it beautifully. I'm going to interview you. <laughs> I was, no, I mean, completely, completely. That's what we're seeing. And we're seeing it for really good reason. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing it from the Met Police in uh, areas where I, I can come on to or, or right the way through to, for example, I mean, a, you know, very high profile example of this have been what Varys Narasimhan's doing at Novartis with his unbossing, which he's not only working on really hard within the organization, but is using very much an employee brand pitch out through social media and, and, and that's the wider world. And it's fascinating to watch how people are, are doing that. So the role of leadership is changing mm. and your word ecosystem, I think, is really correct because in the industrial age, when everything was relatively predictable and certain, certainly for the medium term, we could set up a machine and processes, machines and processes still very relevant, we could pull levers and the thing did what it was supposed to do. And now we're going to have to move at a pace and we're going to need our people to take decisions at the front line at a pace Mm. that we've never seen before. So, for example, uh, within Primark, the person who decides what the local store will stock is the local store manager, the same man or woman who does the holiday rotor, the tea breaks and turns the alarm clock off at 8am, is deciding what that store will stock because only they and their team in store really have that direct contact with their customers. Of course, data from HQ can help. And of course, if there are issues, there's support. Um, In the Met Police example that I I referred to, uh, I mean, I was fascinated. How could it be that armed officers can arrive at the London Bridge terrorist incident in the UK, I think two years back, and have ended the threat from people who were continuing to stab members of the public and other police officers, end that threat within seven minutes of the first 999 call. Where's the getting the guns out of a locked cabinet and getting permission from somebody to take the safety catch off? Mm. So I, I rang one of the senior officers, Deputy Assistant Commissioner, who'd been responsible for some of that cultural change to ask her that question. Mm -hmm. And she was very clear that that decision-making has been pushed now right down the organization along with a lot of cultural shift, a lot of training, a difference in leadership approach in order to give that person who, if they get it wrong, potentially faces a murder charge Mm -hmm. just for doing their job. So I assumed that she was going to tell, and I asked her, I said, well, you must have, therefore, a senior inspector sits in that minibus with those people every night waiting in case some, no, she said, no, the constable decides. Mm. Now, how do we get to that stage culturally? How do we get to that stage when you think where we come from in that hierarchical, um, potentially hierarchical organization? So that empowerment that you speak of is critical because that is the only way we can create an ecosystem where the different tentacles can react mm. at the required pace. Mm. And we use very, two very different examples of where that pace might be required. The challenge is two sides of a coin now. Because you used the word empowerment, which is a really good word to use. In the UK, it's become tired, unfortunately, because it was overused with no real, no real meaning behind it for many years. But now we really mean it, and we have to mean it. Mm. The difficulty is... There's resistance on both sides. One, the empowerers have for years been held accountable for pulling the levers by shareholders, by other members of the board and and their colleagues on the exec. So for them to take that step away from the lever and deploy a different methodology is extremely brave. Mm. The 
Other side of the coin is that those who are to be empowered, you and me, we've spent, since we were at school, being told to show up perfect, show up shiny, polish our shoes and do what we're told. Mm -hmm. And that will lead to uh, promotions and and an extension on the house and a holiday for the kids (laughs) uh, and maybe a pension. So uh, if you're lucky anymore. So so we have a, a whole what I call the fear algorithm, Mm. an area of our brains designed to keep us safe from risk. Mm. And we've got two risks there. One is the risk of of looking an idiot in public by trying something new. One is the risk of getting it wrong and losing my financial security. Uh, The two of the big three risks, uh, dangers that any human faces, risk of rejection from the community and risk of insecurity, uh, inability to feed and clothe ourselves and and our loved ones. The only other harm left is physical damage. The algorithm is designed to protect us from that, filled with data, perceptions, beliefs, which we formed in that old age Mm -hmm. that you and I have already talked about. So we have two sides to the problem. In many organizations now, and I might get some heat for this, I'll speak at around 100 major events a year on top of my consultancy and, and team coaching, exec team coaching work. So that means I get 100 briefing calls from chief execs or EMEA regional leaders, whomsoever it may be. And that's the biggest privilege of my job. In those calls, I'll hear about all the efforts that people have gone to from the executive leadership to create empowerment. And of course, some of those, I'm hearing their version. I do understand that. Mm -hmm. This is where the heat might come. I then go to the event, and my job is to help the people see uh, how do we take the lid off our human workings in order to move faster. Then I'll hit the bar with everybody else at the end of the event and listen to their stories and they will very often tell me about how yeah that's all well and good and they totally get it it's really exciting and that's the modern age and they can see that happening at google and netflix but here oh you don't understand now clearly there's two sides to this dysfunction Mm. uh, that we're all moving through Uh, but there are two sides and one side is it's much easier for me to buy into it's okay at google but it's we've got lesser leadership here and they don't really mean empowerment whilst the leaders are desperately trying to do it to deliver it now clearly the leaders could be making some mistakes too and i'm not discounting Mm -hmm. that possibility in the conversation but there's an interesting fascinating new conversation and it's happening incredibly slowly in the majority of organizations. That makes a lot of sense to me. Because empowerment is one thing to, I suppose, fairly suddenly distribute decision-making through the organization into areas of the organization where traditionally, as you say, it hasn't really resided is one thing. And I agree, it sounds to me like a powerful intention. But if not facilitated in a constructive, supportive way, I can imagine many people in those situations who now feel that they have decision-making passed on to them don't necessarily know or feel comfortable and confident in suddenly making those decisions. That also applies to the leaders themselves who are making the decisions regarding these and other larger initiatives within organizations. The environment itself changing the way it is, those leaders are being required to, in their personal capacity to make better decisions with less data, well, let's say less consistently solid data. The and faster, far, before, before and the make those decisions available. faster. Often with equivalent or even higher levels of accountability because of the degree to which businesses are being held more and more accountable by society and the environments in which they operate. So those leaders are, in one sense, trying to help the rest of the organization make better decisions, while at the same time themselves 
making better decisions. But it's the first part of that that I find really interesting because we hear a lot of conversations these days about leaders need to develop certain skills. And I'll ask you about adaptability shortly, but adaptability is one of them. Uh, The ability to make good decisions in difficult, fast-changing circumstances, uh, flexibility, uh, responsiveness, many different qualities. But there's something far more subtle that they're being required to do as well, which is really almost curate better decision-making throughout the organization, which is a far more human-to-human process and requires far more human-to-human skills. That's the impression that I get. I mean, is that completely off the mark, or what's your view on that? I think it's really close. So let me lay out some concepts, a kind of chain of events, and, and see if it makes sense. In the old days, we ran change through fear, so your cheese was moving, your iceberg was melting, mm-hmm. your platform was burning. We might talk about the sunlit uplands on the other side, but generally we'd, we'd spend a lot of time in it. And, and that, that still has a degree of currency for good reason. We have to understand that staying still is more scary than moving forward, which was that was all about. But then we would issue edicts as to how the levers should change in order to, for the a big change in this machine that we were operating. So so that's gone, as, as we've identified, largely. And we're now looking at how can individuals change their behaviours in order to... Now, that involves individuals understanding how to change their behaviours. This is a new skill set, as far mm. as I'm concerned. Mm. We have not... We've talked to people for at least five years, possibly longer, about the urgency for them to leave the comfort zone, take some risks and innovate, be that in their own behaviours or bringing ideas up the organisation. We have never, as far as I'm aware, helped the majority of people understand what does it mean to leave the comfort zone? Mm. How do I manage my physiology, my chemical changes? Look, we talk about, we never talk about what happens once we've left the comfort zone. We always tell people they should leave it. Like, mm. then it's going to be okay. No, then it's really difficult. Mm. It's really scary. Your heart's going to thud. Every neurotransmitter and every hormone is at the disposal of your fear algorithm, pumping away, saying, keep it safe. And unless you have the metacognitive skills, the ability to cognate about cognition, cognate isn't a verb, I know, but I just think it needs to be, (laughs) as does metacognate in our new world. Unless we've got the skills to do that, we'll back away. And so then we say, oh, well, change is very slow and people resist it. People resist doing things that are high risk that they haven't had training to do. Mm. Attempting a new behavior in public is high risk. So we are now in a situation where leaders, in my experience, who are able to provide an environment where it is safe to take those risks can see their people begin to take those risks, who are willing to train their people into what happens under the hood of being a human being when we face risk, try new things, and and therefore uh, go into an area of uncertainty. Uh, what, what that means physiologically, what that means mentally, what the different systems are that fire up and how to recognize them mm. and realize that you're not in mortal danger of a shark. You're just having a very natural human reaction to putting a new idea across in a meeting. Mm. Now that involves different relationships, which is right back to where you steered me. But I wanted to go through that process to to explain why those relationships need to be different. Because instead of concentrating on making the saw ever more powerful and and pushing it harder through driving change and leading change and and telling people about their burning ice, ice, uh, burning platforms, I think we now need to look at change as an organism, as as an ecosystem. Let's say organism. Let's say at a cellular level. And unless that cell 
has the ability to mutate, then the organism isn't going to advance. So we as leaders then need to be giving the cells the skills to mutate. Mm. And that means a set of skills that I just referred to around recognizing physiology. Then it means a second huge thing, which we're we have a real problem with, is that we then have to, it's fine for, uh, say, the chief executive of, and I'm not speaking a case study here, but the chief executive of, of Novartis to say we're going to unboss. I don't know, in Novartis or any other organization where who are on this journey, what the experiences of somebody far more junior in the organization when they go to their boss, mm. how unbossed they actually are mm. and how much they're told to get back in their pod and deliver what we all had to deliver by Friday. By the mm. way, we still have to deliver what we need to deliver. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges of change is we, we need to look at what the schedule is to change behaviors. Behaviors are recorded in the, in the calendar, so change happens in the calendar. That's a different conversation, but, but key, and I just park it there. Mm. But we have a, I hate the phrase, middle management community who we have to support to enable their people to work in this new way. And we have to enable them to work in this new way. And this, beyond the scope of our our conversation, really, other than to highlight it, is a new skill set, a new area of managing risk, and a new area of coaching, but in a a very exciting 21st century way. So we, we look at coaching culture. Why has that been so important? Why is it still so important? It's a process, the only one we've got really, by which we place ownership back on the performer rather than taking ownership in order to deliver. So how do we help our middle managers ensure that when that cell tries to exercise its new mutative skills, it is not told to return to original shape and function? and not dare to try that one again, which won't be used in words. It'll be used in eye contact, body language, and the, and the general demeanor of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I get the message really quick. I then got an option, buckle down and, and do what I need to do to survive in that environment or leave. Mm. And we each take our options. You, you mentioned metacognition as one of those fundamental skills. Our team's been doing quite a lot of metacognition, quite a lot of work into integrating metacognition into our leadership framework. Okay. And... One of the things that's really struck me, which was different from my initial understanding of metacognition, this idea of learning, thinking about thinking, or in another frame, learning about learning, is that it's not just an ad hoc process. It becomes a perspective that one holds as much or as continuously as possible. And actually part of that learning about learning, it's a self-reflective feedback loop where one actually learns about the way that one actually approaches things and approaches situations that are new, which require essentially that definitive learning. So in that metacognitive process, what separates the people who've become overwhelmed or kind of get stuck in that, okay, so I can see all this data, my heart beats racing, I suddenly realize that I'm hot and flushed and I'm actually really, really afraid right now because someone's put me on the spot in the middle of a meeting and asked me to answer a question and I'm not sure what the numbers are, whatever the the situation is. There's a point of awareness there. What comes next? What is it that takes people from that into a place where they use situations like that in a constructive way to continuously improve themselves and become more and more skillful at managing let's call it stress or high pressure or shifting requirements and expectations? So many things in that question, and I'll differentiate first of all between the situation you describe where the person has asked a question 
and moves into a high-stress state because in the presence of authority, they haven't got an answer they might be expected to have. I'm assuming they might be expected to have it. Yes. Otherwise, we can own that situation <laughs> uh, differently. And, and, and in the new world, we can say, there's no reason I should have that data, yeah. and I don't at this stage, but let me come back to you. But assuming they should have had it, then we've, we're being evaluated. We've just fallen down, and we're going to have to have metacognition about how we how we're conducting ourselves professionally to move forward from that. So so that's a slightly important but slightly different situation to where I am considering actively a new course of behaviours with my clients or a, a new way of looking at my sales calendar or my sales conversation, mm-hmm. going right down to the frontline cellular level, a new way of talking about innovation with my superior at work in order to bring my ideas forward, which is a premeditated act. And therefore, I have more time to metacognate about that. Let's work together to create this verb. By the way, do you know if you Google metacognition, you only go into the world of education and learning about learning. It's, uh, all, it's all about schools, which is really exciting for the yeah, future yeah, yeah. of our young people. Really exciting that teachers are, are moving into this field, but really scary that no one's really addressing this from a, an adult perspective where we go straight into self-awareness and mindfulness, which have meaning, but I would hazard to suggest slightly more hazy to the majority of people than metacognition, being aware of how you think and thinking about your thinking and your emotional response to that thinking. I absolutely, I just, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I went through the same process when I first heard the term metacognition some time back. Uh, first thing I did was Google it and exactly to reiterate what you were saying, a lot of stuff and resources for teachers and a lot of stuff yeah. about education, etc. Yeah. And mindfulness, obviously, is a huge trend, especially in the corporate environment, because it really is teaching and flexing that ability to become self-aware in the moment. But if there is, you know, I'm not particularly for or against mindfulness as such, but I have found in my own experience of those kind of practices that there is potentially a developmental limit in the practice itself. So, you learn mindfulness techniques and you become more aware of various things in the moment. How do you use that awareness? How do you use the data that comes up in those moments of awareness? Well, taking that into a dynamic process of constant evolution, yeah. that is, that's a metacognitive approach. And yeah, I mean, to me, it doesn't make sense either that, well, this is one of the reasons we've started focusing on it so strongly is because it really belongs in the space of personal, organizational, individual development. Because that learning about the way that you learn is absolutely critical to to learn and to progress, but to do it in an accelerated way as well. Entirely agreed. And I'm, I'll, not, I'll, I'll stay on the fence when it comes to mindfulness, but I will differentiate metacognition as being a hard professional skill. Mm. Um, I, mean, I guess mm. it ought to be called soft, because it, but, I, but, <laughs> but, but I want to call it, I really want to call it hard, because, <laughs> yeah. because we're talking about a real professional approach yeah. to owning my performance, my career, and the performance of my department, if I run one, by developing the skills to manage myself through a process of discomfort to deliver change. And that is a critical skill now, and it is not about being in the moment, although that might add to my ability to do that. It's about being able to look at my perceptions, how I, the narratives, the story, the data in my algorithm. It's about being able to understand why I perceive certain things as threats and whether they are threats. And guess what? This isn't about looking in the mirror and, and having a mantra that says it's not a threat, it's not a threat. It might be a threat, and in which case I'm going to have to deal with that. Mm. And I may have to deal with that with bringing in people in authority to work with me to overcome what is an internal, a very definite threat if I move forward in this direction. So I, one of the ideas that I'll put across is that in my current work 
is that there are three elements. We change our, our thinking. I hesitate to use the word mindset because it's been so overused and woolly. But by thinking, I mean my metacognition and my ability to understand how I perceive the world around me mm-hmm. and respond by those perceptions rather than a more intelligent approach. The process can be running me rather than my purpose running me. And if my purpose isn't in charge, my process for sure will be. Mm -hmm. And we were taught at school and through the industrial age, rely on process rather than purpose. Purpose was shut down. Now we're asking people to bring purpose back. So what are the perceptions I'm running by? What do I perceive as threats? Can I own this, even though I see it as a threat? And that threat might be coming from a senior place. Can I own a discussion? Now, once I've got mindset, I can then move on to relationships. This isn't linear, by the way. These Mm -hmm. probably do come as step one and two, but it's going to be a constant cycle. And now I look at those relationship shifts, which brings us back to the problem of those poor and much maligned middle managers that, that I referred to. They've got great having a vision from the CEO, but there's someone in the middle who's got to deliver results by Friday and they're just furiously pulling levers. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to work on a relationship shift with them. And if the CEO is serious, he or she is going to have to support those people to understand how they play a part mm-hmm. in that relationship shift. Mm-hmm. So mindset to relationship and then I can deliver new behaviors. And so that metacognitive process is very different to a mindfulness process. Mm-hmm. Each may have their values. But this is a very hard skill. Let's talk about adaptability. When we speak about adaptability in this context, what is your preferred interpretation understanding of what it means to be adaptable in situations like that? So is it metacognition is obviously a critical aspect of that because it really is almost the the skeleton of adaptability. Am I understanding correctly your your viewpoint on that? Entirely my approach. Yeah. yeah. Uh, looking at it from the individual's perspective, because yes, we then have the, 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 the environment, the ecosystem within which that individual operates, which the leadership can impact. Individual can impact, but clearly far less. And to me, just to summarize, because I said it with many words before, that, that starts with our thinking. It moves into our beginning to check relationships. And then it will possibly require the acquisition of new skills. Mm -hmm. And in in the final reckoning, then the final output is that I am able to change my behaviors, my contribution. But I have to be able to understand myself, then enter a different relationship with my team, my superiors, or those whom I lead. I then can potentially have to acquire new skills. And at that stage, I can move forward. And this was fascinating in the free dive. Let's go right off away from corporate to some of the areas where I've chosen to personally test it just for a moment. I have to adapt my thinking because I don't think that a 43-year-old guy from London who's never free-dived and, and has only recently managed to wean himself off 20 Marlboros a day has got much, um, uh, which wasn't helped by the, by the jockeying environment, which was the only sporting <laughs> changing room I'd ever been in. It has changed now, where everybody was passing cigarettes around in the changing room. But, but you have to take into account the dietary um, impact. Mm. But the first step then is thinking, why does my perception say that I can't do this? What are the, what is the, what does the true empirical data say? Because actually it's very unclear. There's no empirical data mm-hmm. to say that I can't do this. There's just a general assumption that you've got to be a young yoga buck who lives by the sea to, to pull this off. <laughs> then I've got to build new relationships because I can't do anything like mm-hmm. this nature on my own. And then I have to acquire skills. And the biggest skill in freediving is, is managing purpose over process, is managing your mental processes so that they don't run haywire and go into the the wrong circuitry, Mm -hmm. into the algorithm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that fires up and lights up my entire limbic system to protect me from a significant threat, Mm -hmm. uh, whilst it is the most 
glorious sport. It's an exercise in meditation and managing emotion. It's a hug at 90 to 100 meters, a hug, the biggest hug you can possibly get from the planet. Uh, One is also in quite a hostile environment with relatively minor room for error in performance. So to go there, I'm going to have to acquire new skills, skills of performance management, skills of breath hold, skills of mental management, mental skills. And then I'm going to have to then, then change my behaviors to go and take the free dive record. You know, it's, it's the same. It's a really solid process. So metacognition isn't woolly. It's a really solid process. And this questioning of perception becomes key. So this idea of a coaching culture where everybody becomes more and more in tune through being the coach as the leader, listening to perceptions and challenging them. You cannot do that without asking yourself as you walk away from that discussion, So why did I perceive it like that with my boss yesterday or my more senior customer yesterday? Why did I do that? So it cannot help but introduce a vocabulary and therefore the concepts of perception, the data in the algorithm, how the algorithm affects my behavior, how my process takes over my purpose, and therefore I don't create change. So we we come into this virtuous circle eventually if we can push this through as a cultural shift we haven't used the word culture but these are cultural shifts and where i think we've gone very wrong in the past is looking at culture as a set of nice to have values that we've put up in reception and i'll still see this and then i'll go and we'll have a discussion with uh, perhaps the chief executive perhaps somebody from hr and they'll tell me about how they've done this really exciting values exercise. And I'll say, talk me through the values. I say, oh, we've got five. There are A and B and C. Has anyone got the slide? <laughs> and there we end. Now, when you work in an elite environment where performance has come to the fore and those ideas, and they will be present, whether they're called values or whether they're called something else, those ideas, those cultural aspirations will be present. They're present because of the context. So we're in a great team are going to win a World Cup, and we've got this purpose. And in order to do that and behave behave ourselves in the way that will allow us to perform at that level, we need to operate between each other in this way. So let's write this down and do it. Mm -hmm. And now we're setting culture for context. Now we have a possibility that it will really mean something to people in a way that putting an integrity poster up almost insults. I I thought I came to work with integrity. Actually, most people tend to pull back from true integrity because the algorithm stops them. they'll, They'll be honest, but only to a point. But now that context begins to bring those cultural desirables to a new level of understanding and relevance. I love that. And it reminds me of a comment that a guest recently made on this show, which was that culture is values manifested as behavior. And that really, for me, really neatly closes that loop that you've so beautifully described, that roots towards increasing um, the metacognitive process towards greater awareness, potential skills development, leading to behavior, which is underpinned essentially, and in the best cases, by values that translate into this culture of continuous development. And they matter because of the context which gives rise to these values. These help me to win. They help us to win. And that means we can feed our families and we can make a contribution to the wider community. And for that reason, Mr. Boss, I'd like to talk to you about X, which I wouldn't have done a year ago, but you and I are in a world now where we both want to win and we know what we've got to do to win. We've got cultural values that we care about in order to win, which means I'm surely allowed to have this new relationship with you Mm -hmm. where I talk about what happens in our team meetings on a Monday, which kills everybody. Mm -hmm. Is that okay with you? Mm -hmm. And the possibility is 
that it is mm. within that context. That's a new world. Yeah. Jim Lawless, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a genuine you, pleasure. Real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more on our guests and the resources described in this podcast, please refer to the information section of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to receive updates and latest episodes of Learning Rewired, brought to you by Headspring. Headspring.